Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we have on the show Dr. Paul Offit. He has previously been on the show to talk about his book, Bad Advice, or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information. He is here today to talk about his book, Do You Believe in Magic? Vitamins, Supplements, and All Things Natural, A Look Behind the Curtain. Paul, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm trained as a pediatrician. Um, I did a three-year residency um, at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, and then um, I did a fellowship in pediatric infectious disease, at which point I sort of fell in love with basic research. So spent then the next 26 years in a laboratory um, creating what ended up being the strains of um, of bovine human reassortant rotaviruses that became the vaccine Rotatec. This is a vaccine that was licensed for and recommended for use in all children in this country in 2006 and for all children in the world in 2013. It prevents a virus called rotavirus, which is a cause of fever, vomiting, and diarrhea in young children. In this country, it causes um, tens of thousands of children to be hospitalized and tens to die. But in the developing world, it causes about 2,000 children to die a day. So it's a uh, it's, uh, I was fortunate to be part of a team here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created that vaccine. So what inspired you to write Do You Believe in Magic? Actually, the, the, I'm head of the, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Therapeutic Standards Committee. And what I noticed was sort of a creep uh, among uh, academic institutions like ours. We're obviously part of University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And, you know, to kind of please the public, um, you know, to give them things like, dietary supplements and acupuncture um, and Reiki and, and et cetera, as uh, I think in some ways is a play for the suburbs. People generally pay out of pocket. And so that was part of it. I think the other part of it was that, um, you know, we had a number of supplements on our, um, on our formulary and these dietary supplements are, are not a regulated industry. And so what ended up happening was, for example, um, you know, patients would bring in, say, selenium. And it, in the bottle, it would say 20 micrograms. And they would want to give this. Now, the way it works in the hospital is that the Joint Commission of Hospital Accreditation insists that you treat dietary supplements like drugs. Fair enough. They are drugs, which meant that for us, we had to store them, write a prescription for them, selenium, 20 micrograms every day, and then give them. Now, because it's an unregulated industry, we didn't know whether it was 20 micrograms or not. We didn't know whether it was selenium or not because it's unregulated. And certainly these, these products are being pulled off the shelf on a weekly basis because they don't contain what they're claimed to contain on the label. So we felt like we were participating in a fraud. And with that, I got interested in kind of trying to take a look behind the curtain of this kind of mega vitamin dietary supplement industry to see what was going on. 
So how would you define alternative medicine and what is the difference between alternative and conventional medicine? Um, I think there is no such thing as alternative medicine. I think that if an alternative medicine works, it's medicine. And if an alternative medicine doesn't work, it's not an alternative. So I think there's conventional medicine, which is to say medicine that has been tested in, in, in studies, is well hewn by studies. And then there's stuff that people do that uh, is generally not studied or has been studied and found to be ineffective. Would you please share the story from your book about uh, Joey Hofbauer? Right. So this, this was a boy who had, um, had a, a type of cancer, leukemia, which, you know, his parents chose to treat with alternatives instead of conventional therapy. It's, it's, it's really, this is, this is medicine at its worst, um, or this is alternative medicine at its worst, where, you know, people, people offer these sort of magical cures where you don't have to do things like chemotherapy. You don't have to do things like radiation. You don't have to do things like surgery. You can, in fact, treat yourself with this gentler kind of alternative uh, medicine, and in this case, until this boy died. I think actually the best example would be somebody like Steve Jobs, certainly a well-educated, bright man who has access to the best of information. He had a pancreatic tumor. Now, he didn't have the, the typical kind of pancreatic tumor, the, the so-called adenocarcinoma, the, a, a tumor which is frankly invariable, invariably fatal, for which medicine hasn't frankly caught up. He didn't have that kind of tumor. He had something called a neuroendocrine tumor that just happened to be in his pan pancreas. With early surgery, he had a 95% chance of survival, but he didn't choose that. He chose an alternative course. So instead, instead of getting that early surgery that would have saved his life, rather, he chose acupuncture. He chose uh, um, sort of uh, uh, enemas, so-called enemas with uh, coffee containing enemas. He chose uh, sort of mega juices and mega vitamins. And, and eventually, by the time he finally had the surgery that would have saved his life much earlier, it was too late. And he died because of those choices. His choice to, uh, to take an alternative course ultimately killed him. Dr. Oz is extremely popular, has his own TV show, he's a best-selling author, and has a lot of people that uh, believe what he says. Uh, a lot of people consider what he says to be fact. Um, he embraces alternative medicine and even the supernatural. Can you talk about Dr. Oz and your thoughts on him? I think... Um what Dr. Oz does is something I would put under the category of the Bones-McCoy seduction. So Bones-McCoy was the chief medical officer on the USS Enterprise. He um, had um, this device called a tricorder. And when you had a series of signs and symptoms, he would scan you up and down, and he would look at that tricorder, and that's what you had. The readout was what you had. And there's something very seductive about that level of surety. People like Mehmet Oz or Deepak Chopra um, are gurus. They present themselves as, in some ways as all-knowing gurus with magical solutions. Whereas if I think if I ask most people, um, do you think medicine and science will advance 100 years from now? Um, I think everyone would say yes. But when it comes to your disease, you would like to believe that we know everything that we need to know right now. What Oz does is he sort of creates these kind of magical therapies, you know, magical beans, if you will, that, that, are going to, uh, that are going to make you better. And he appeals to that notion, a, a correct notion, 
that conventional medicine or that modern medicine only knows so much, but he knows more and he knows more and he's going to tell you about that um, because uh, because this con these conventional therapists aren't willing to tell you. It's the so-called, you know, what your doctor doesn't want you to know phenomenon, which is all the more remarkable because he's a cardiovascular surgeon. I mean, he certainly was trained in a classic manner. He's still, I think, still a professor of cardiovascular surgery at, uh, at Columbia. He's, he's a brilliant man, trained here, actually, at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, so blame us. But um, I, I, think, uh, I think that's his appeal. Uh, you know, when he, for example, author, off, offers things like you know, exercise and eating healthy diets, that's all fine. I think he just starts to cross the line sometimes when he offers things that are magical. For you know, for your weight loss, et cetera, and that 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 uh, appeals to our our sense of magical thinking, which never serves us well. Yeah, didn't he have that? Um, what was his name? John Edwards, the the guy that talks to the ghosts or whatever on his show too. At some point, he did. He did do that. So again, it's it's uh, you know, at, at some level, this may sound uh, counterintuitive, but I think I think things like you know, yoga or Reiki or meditation, Reiki where you're sort of use your, you never touch the body, but you quote unquote manipulate the healing energies or it appeals to, you know, or the notion of, 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 you know, praying mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to people. I think that's all fine. I, I think you cross the line when you do that instead of conventional therapies that clearly can help you, or when you spend enormous amounts of money on these alternative courses. Um, and, and I, you know, to kind of, which I think is take take advantage of people who have a desperate desire to make themselves better. That that's where it crosses the line. Has 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 Columbia said anything about kind of his doing that at all? Just out of curiosity. I I know for a fact that there certainly are a number of people who are professors in Columbia that that are embarrassed by what he does and says, but there seems to be little interest in uh, at least the administrators in in holding him to task. Can you talk a bit about the the vitamin craze? Where did it come from? Uh, some vitamin supplements are way over the daily recommended amount, uh, clearly way too much. But let's talk or, or, or let's talk about that. But you know, kind of dial it back a bit too. Should people take a daily multivitamin? Right. So, so vitamins, vita from the Latin for life, are necessary. A necessary component to live. Um, generally, as as the definition of vitamin implies that this is something that your body can't make, but that you need to get from food. So if you don't get enough vitamin C, you will suffer scurvy. If you don't get enough uh, certain B-complex vitamins, you suffer disease called pellagra. If you don't get enough vitamin D, you suffer rickets. So those are all um, vitamin deficiency states. So you need vitamins. Um, the question is, where do you get them? Now, we get the vitamins we need from foods. Most, most of the foods that we eat are, or many of the foods that we eat are supplemented. And so it's very, very hard to be vitamin deficient in the United States. I mean, how many people with scurvy do you know? How many people with rickets do you know? Um, nonetheless, I think that this, this industry, the dietary supplement industry, has sold people on the fact that they're not getting what they need. And so they've sold them on the fact that just to be sure, just to make sure that you're not jumping without a net, take a multivitamin. Um, which I, which study after study has shown, for the most part, does nothing but make for a lot of expensive urine. So the answer <laughs> to the question, do you need a multivitamin I, every day? I think the answer to that question is no. Worse, what happens is people take these megavitamins, which is to say levels of vitamins vastly in excess of the, the, uh, the recommended dietary allowance, or RDA. So when people get a cold, for example, they'll take massive quantities of vitamin C, 
thinking that that's either going to treat or prevent their colds when study after study, and there's been 15 studies at this point, have shown that that's not true. And people also assume that these can never hurt you. But, you know, vitamin C does have certain side effects. Vitamin, you know, excess quantities of vitamin D does have certain side effects. And the worst of it all is that you actually can, can take so much. Well, I'll take a step back. Antioxidants are, you, are a very um, popular term. Antioxidation is a popular term. It's right up there with words like natural and organic for sales impact. Um, the notion is, and, and you can see where this comes from, it, oxidation um, is something that your body does all the time. Um, when you, um, when you um, convert food to energy, um, that releases something called free radicals. The process by which those free radicals are released is, is oxidation. Those free radicals can damage cell membranes and they can damage DNA. And so your body has certain natural antioxidants. If you look at people who, who ingest, you know, generally diets rich in antioxidants, rich in fruits, rich in vegetables, they generally tend to have a lesser incidence of cancer, a lesser incidence of heart disease, and live longer. So, and studies have shown that. The, the, the question is then, and people make the logical leap then, that wouldn't it make sense if that's true to even take even more in the way of antioxidants uh, via supplements? So instead of just getting it in food, get it in a matter that I would consider to be unnatural, which is as a pill. Um, and so what we now know is that, again, there, there are about 12 studies that have looked at this. People that take large quantities of supplemental antioxidants actually have a greater risk of, of cancer and a greater risk of heart disease. Um, there's actually an article in, in The Lancet, which is a general medical journal, that was called The Antioxidant Paradox. And the reason is, is that, that your body also uses oxidation for other things, like killing new cancer cells, killing bacteria and fungi that enter your body, um, and, and, and helping to clean up clogged arteries. So you can actually shift the balance of oxidation and antioxidation far too far in the, in the direction of antioxidation and do harm. And that's where people should be suspicious. It, 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 it's remarkable to me that people consider dietary supplements to be natural when they're a uniquely unnatural thing to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, God didn't make a, a, a thousand milligram tablet of, of, of vitamin C. I mean, you know, if, you know, what nature gave us vitamin C in the form of fruits. I mean, you would have to eat, you know, like, like eight cantaloupe to get what's in one vitamin C tablet. And, you know, we're not meant to eat eight cantaloupes. That's why our stomach is only so big. But we can bypass that natural process of, of ingesting vitamins by taking these, these, uh, these supplements. It's, it is a highly unnatural act. And, the, uh, you know, credit to the industry. They've been able to convince us that it's the most natural thing to do. What about the, the insurance policy of, I do my best to eat well, but I just want to take a standard multivitamin just kind of, just in case, just to make sure I'm getting just enough of everything? Again, it's, it's hard to avoid the vitamins and, and minerals that you need in food. It really is. It's why you don't know people with rickets and you don't know people with scurvy. So, I mean, my, my son, for example, um, doesn't like fruits. He doesn't. Um, he just, he, he never has. Um, he doesn't even like fruit juices, but he's not vitamin C deficient because you know, there are many other sort of things in which in which you come in contact with vitamin C. So I think, you know, it's just, you, you know, you don't need that. You don't need that safety net. It's it's just very hard. Not, it's very hard to avoid, um, you know, vitamins. 
it is. You have to really work at it to avoid vitamins. So, and so a vegan, a strict vegan, mm-hmm. can successfully avoid a vitamin, certain vitamin B, B uh, um, certain uh, types of vitamin B, and so would need to supplement. That that's true. And I think you know when children are born, they're vitamin K deficient. You need vitamin K to help your blood clot. That's why vitamin K is recommended as a shot for newborn children. Um, some people choose not to get that shot and therefore put their children at risk in the first couple months of life of vitamin K deficient bleeding, including bleeding, um, you know, in the space between the skull and the brain. And that happens. Um, so, so you need vitamin K in that setting. If you're um, a woman who is of childbearing age, you need folic acid. Um, to make sure that you will not deliver a child who has uh, a birth defects, so-called midline defects. But again, I mean, really, ever since the late 1990s, the FDA has insisted that uh, folic acid be added to things like rice and cereals and grains. So it's very hard now to be folic acid deficient. Um, and so the instance of that type of deformity has, has, has dramatically declined. So, and, uh, so those are examples. I think someone who's a strict vegan, someone who's, um, you know, who is... Uh, you know, who, 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 who is born and, and obviously is going to need a vitamin K shot. And for children who are dark skins, dark skinned and um, aren't breastfed, I mean, they too can benefit from, from some supplemental uh, vitamins like vitamin D. But for the most part, we get what we need. Vitamin D, interestingly, is it really shouldn't be called a vitamin because you can actually make your own vitamin D by being out in the sun for 15 minutes a couple times a week without sunblock. What are your thoughts on, on probiotic supplements? I know that's one of the popular ones now. Again, I, I'm looking for evidence that it makes a difference. There, there is a probiotic that we actually have on the formulary at, at our hospital um, that has been shown to be of value in people who have a certain type of bacterial infection of the, of the uh, intestine called Clostridium difficile. And this particular probiotic does make a difference in that setting. There, there are some data, and although interestingly, they're really not in, in the developed world, in the developing world that people who have... Um, intestinal infections when they take a certain probiotic can reduce the, the number of days uh, that they, they um, have that infection, although that hasn't really been shown in the, in the developed world. You know, it's funny if you look at, you know, these uh, probiotics like Cultural, they'll say it's the most studied probiotic on the market. Yeah, it's the most studied, but where has it been shown to work? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the problem with, uh, with these probiotics. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's uh, more and more we're learning about the microbiome which is to say these trillions or hundreds of trillions of bacteria that live at our intestinal mucosal surface, which is an enormous sort of genetic load, really, to our intestinal mucosal surface. And we're now learning determines, that microbiome determines things like when you grow up, whether you'll have asthma or allergies or or obesity or diabetes. So I think, you know, how we handle that microbiome early in life matters. And, And certainly it's been shown that children, for example, as babies, if they are exposed to antibiotics, you know, frequent antibiotic courses or long-term courses of antibiotics are more likely to alter their microbiome in a bad way. So that's what antibiotics can do. So, so logically, one would consider, okay, well, how about probiotics, which is to say the good bacteria. Let's make sure that the intestine is, uh, is now colonized with the good bacteria. But you have roughly 10 to the 14th bacteria on your intestinal mucosal surface. That's 100 trillion bacteria. If you look at the quantity of bacteria that's contained in these probiotics, they're trivial. You know, it's like 10 to the sixth. You know, it's like a million. And you're putting into an area where there's 100 trillion. So it, it, when you think about it, it makes sense that they wouldn't be, show, be shown to make much difference. I don't think they hurt, but I don't think there's clear evidence uh, in many of these settings that they help. How and why does the, the supplement industry get a, a free pass from the FDA? 
And also, why can I go into a Walgreens or respected drugstore chain or whatever and see, you know, probiotics, uh, the the vitamin C supplements next to the cold medicine and just and, and things like that? Well, for the reason that you would expect, this this is a very lucrative industry. Um, it, you know, a couple of years ago, it was a $34 billion per year industry. When you're that lucrative, you will have a lot of influence in Congress. And so these uh, these supplement manufacturers give money to people that, that make sure that they're protected. People like uh, Orrin Hatch from Utah is one example. I mean, there are a number of uh, nutraceutical uh, companies in Utah. There's a, nutra- there's a nutraceutical essentially lobbying firm in Utah, and they support his, his uh, candidacy and have for decades. And, and, you know, he, as Orrin Hatch, has made sure they're protected from federal regulation. So they, they, what, what these, these, uh, these uh, dietary supplement con- companies do is they never make a, a specific claim. For example, they don't say that, that uh, the concentrated garlic lowers, you know, uh, lip, low density lipoprotein cholesterol or, or increases, you know, the good cholesterol, high density lipoprotein cholesterol. They never say that. They just say, you know, it supports heart health. So, so then they, 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 if they made a specific claim, they would fall under the, the category or they would fall under the auspices of the Food and Drug Administration because they don't make a specific claim. They'll say supports joint health, supports prostate health, supports heart health, um, supports your immune system. It's a vaguer claim. And that enables them to continue to do what they're doing. Believe me, the FDA would love to regulate them. I mean, the FDA is 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 only post hoc pulling these these uh, supplements off the shelf pretty much once a week when they've been sh- shown to do harm, like you know the Oxy Elite Pro disaster in uh, in Hawaii, where this is a uh, a particular uh, dietary supplement which caused severe liver damage. And you know, there's many examples of this. There was one. Uh, supplement that was uh, made by the ironically named Purity First company in, uh, in the Northeast that caused women to have masculinizing symptoms when it was found to contain uh, a particular kind of uh, a male steroid hormone. And again, because these aren't regulated products, you don't know what you're getting, which is why Children's Hospital Philadelphia, for the most part, we've eliminated them from our formulary because we don't trust them. Can you talk a bit about the effectiveness or lack thereof of some of the more popular uh, supplements or, or alternative therapies out there, such as St. John's wort, saw palmetto, um, garlic for cholesterol, fish oil, things like that. Right. So, so um, you know, it's like the magical medicine. We want to believe it. You know, chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine is very popular for um, people who have knee arthritis or hip arthritis. And frankly, you know, I was recommended after I had uh, microfracture surgery on my knee for what was uh, sort of a loss of cartilage, I was recommended to take, you know, chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine. But if you look at the data, there, there's the, and this was a New England Journal of Medicine publication, there's no evidence that it works better than placebo. Now, the good news about it is, although it's expensive, is that um, it doesn't hurt. Uh, it's not as distinct from, say, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like, you know, ibuprofen uh, or um, Celebrex, a COX-2 inhibitor. Th- those those products, you know, can have side effects. I think the chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine is benign, although not cheap. And so, so I'm trying to give my orthopedic surgeon the benefit of the doubt that he was just trying to get me to avoid pain medicines, which I did anyway. Uh, so so th- there is that that draw that you can, instead of taking a pharmaceutical product, for example, you can take concentrated garlic to lower bad cholesterol, which is to say the high density lipoprotein, I'm sorry, the, the, the very low density lipoprotein cholesterol, um, even though it's been shown not to do that. So, you know, and then, then, uh, saw palmetto, you know, it's for the treatment of, uh, uh, 
benign prostatic hypertrophy, you know, where your prostate gets, gets large, as this happens as men get older, and that causes them to retain urine, which can cause, you know, things like uh, urinary tract infections and bladder stones, kidney stones. So again, it, you'd like to take that because you think that, that this will work without causing harm. That's never true. Anything that has a, a biological effect, a pharmaceutical effect that helps you also can hurt you. But somehow this industry has managed to sell itself as, as benign, whereas it can help you but can't hurt you. And that's not true. As a general rule, what it does is it doesn't help you or hurt you. But um, again, you're usually just, just paying money. But remember, because it's an unregulated industry, sometimes you get into trouble, as was true with that uh, that it was a vitamin product actually that caused masculinizing symptoms or this, this dietary supplement, Oxy Elite Pro, that caused uh, liver damage. You just have to be careful. You, you don't know what you're getting. It, it, it looks good. It's got a fancy label. It's got, you know, it, it, it lists things that it, in a scientific manner, 20 micrograms of selenium. It all sounds good. But realize that the FDA is not looking over the shoulder of, of, of these companies because they don't have the manpower to do it, frankly, and they're not allowed to do it. Out of curiosity, you know, I know uh, the fish oil supplements are ones that are really popular nowadays, too, for brain function and things like that. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that one? Again, I, I mean, if, if that really worked, if, 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 if fish oil really did do things like uh, delay Alzheimer's or, or treat Parkinson's or improve memory, that would be great. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm all for it, especially as I get older. But, you know, it, it's where are the data? Where are the solid prospective control data that that really works? And, and these companies don't do those studies because they don't have to, one. And because if they did do them, you would find out that their claims are, are thin or on a sort of mountain of sand. And so that's why you don't see those studies. It's much easier to make the claim. It's much easier to, to get a celebrity to support that claim. It's much easier to get, you know, patients and parents to say this is just a miracle than it is to actually do the studies. Uh, you talked about the celebrities. Will you talk a bit about, or you touched on celebrities, will you talk a bit about Suzanne Summers, uh, her anti-aging regimen, the alternative therapies that she promotes and encourages others to use? Yeah, you know, we get older. We get older, our skin thins, our hair thins, we get balder. Um, you know, we become, our muscles weaken. Um, our joints become more problematic. It's just a natural consequence of aging. I mean, as you, it's what uh, um, people have called the end replication pro problem, which is to say, when your cells reproduce, what happens is because your, you know, your cells are constantly reproducing, is the the when the 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 genome, the so-called uh, DNA in your cells reproduces itself, so that the next cell can have the same DNA. Um, there's this, there's there's a an enzyme that sits on top of that DNA, much as a train sits on top of a track, and then it proceeds to move forward and 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 uh, and copy what is in front of it. What it doesn't copy, however, is what's underneath it. The, the end of that uh, DNA, the so-called, and that's the so-called end replication problem. So we, we sort of knock off little bits of our DNA each time the, the cell uh, reproduces itself. Also, because we eat and because we have to convert food into energy, we're always making free radicals. And the free radicals also damage DNA and also uh, damage cell membranes, which is to say that the minute that you're born, you do turn on a switch that ultimately leads to your own destruction. It's true, we're born to die. We, we, aging is inevitable. And these, these things that are offered to reverse that process, of course, don't reverse that process. You can't, you can't, you know, 
uh, eliminate free radicals, um, nor would you necessarily want to, because oxidation is necessary to kill bacteria, and oxidation is necessary to kill new cancer cells, which we're generating all the time. I mean, we are our cells periodically become transformed to become cancerous all the time, but our immune system recognizes that and kills those cells before it can. That's why when you when you take large quantities of antioxidants, you paralyze your immune system's capacity to do that and put yourself at increased risk of cancer. I mean, look look at the vitamin E story. There are probably five studies now that show that if you take large quantities of vitamin E as a male, you you clearly increase your risk of prostate cancer. If this were a regulated product, if vitamin, I'm talking about mega doses of vitamin E, vitamin E. If you you know the doses that are thousandfold greater than you would, you know, sort of 3,000 times the recommended daily allowance. When, when you do that, you put yourself at risk of prostate cancer. Were the FDA regulating this, that product would have a black box warning on it, but it doesn't. And so, you know, people then put themselves at, at risk. I mean, my father took large doses of vitamin A and ultimately had prostate cancer. I'm not saying that, that one caused the other, but those two things have been shown to be associated. And, um, you know, people don't know that because the industry isn't regulated. So every summer, I live in Iowa, right? And every summer, there's quite a bit of talk about Lyme disease and ticks, and you got to watch out for ticks. Can you, it, can you tell us about chronic Lyme and the industry that sprung up around so-called Lyme literate doctors? Right. So um, Lyme is a real disease. It was actually originally described in Old Lyme, Connecticut, hence its name. It's caused by a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi, because Henry Burgdorfer was the first to um, recognize this, Dr. Burgdorfer. Um, and so that bacteria can, can, uh, can invade the body and cause a variety of symptoms, cause initially so-called bullseye rash, and then you can get symptoms. You can get um, Lyme meningitis, which is to say inflammation of the lining of your brain. You can get Lyme arthritis, which is to say inflammation of your joints. You can get Lyme carditis, which is to say inflammation of your heart to the point that you can have an arrhythmia. That's all true. And, and, and when a doctor, uh, a, <laughs> a truly Lyme literate doctor, which is to say an infectious disease expert, um, sees Lyme, they, they, you can have chronic Lyme, which is to say you can have recurrent or persistent or chronic arthritis because you had a Lyme infection. That is true. Um, with, with the, however, we've kind of moved into this vast netherworld of what now is called chronic Lyme and is now supported by these quote unquote Lyme literate doctors where people have much vaguer complaints, you know, sort of chronic pain syndromes, chronic fatigue syndromes, fibromyalgia, that sort of thing now has all fallen under the category of, you know, Lyme disease. There are laboratories which will support this notion that you have a chronic Lyme infection. A Lyme is a bacteria, it's, it's caused by bacteria. It can therefore be eliminated by antibiotics. It's, it's a bacteria that reproduces itself outside of cells, so it's actually easy to eliminate with antibiotics. And so that initial treatment, that initial few-week, three- to four-week treatment, eliminates the bacteria. And when you see, for example, people who are treated for Lyme correctly but who develop chronic, say, arthritis or persistent arthritis, that's because of this autoimmune response that's generated by that bacteria, which occurs. And that is cer certainly true. You can get chronic arthritis from Lyme. But, but continuing to treat with antibiotics doesn't do anything for that because it's not the Lyme bacteria that are replicating anymore. It's just this autoimmune response that's been uh, created by that bacteria. So I think that what we're doing is we're treating a lot of uh, psychological illness with antibiotics under the category of chronic Lyme disease, and it, it's done a lot of harm. Can you talk a bit about some of the bogus cancer cures that are out there? 
Um, sure. There, there's um, a physician named uh, Brzezinski in Texas who has these so-called anti-neoplastines that he isolated initially from urine, uh, which has, you know, again, never been shown to make a difference. But he somehow managed to, con- to continue to thrive um, in Texas, uh, remarkably uh, making that kind of claim. And then it's just the general claims of, you know, the, the you know, the acupuncture and the Reiki and, and um, you know, the supplements that, uh, you know, that are, that are used. It's, it's, it is, it is hard to watch it. And it's, um, it's the most unfair actually, because especially in the world of children, you know, people are desperate to do anything to, to eliminate their, their cancers. And, and there are certain cancers for which medicine doesn't have much to offer. I mean, pancreatic cancers, brainstem gliomas are, are, um, are generally death sentences. And um, we haven't, and glioblastomas of the brain also generally are death sentences. So we don't have much for that. And so you see a lot of sort of stuff springing up. And again, my, my feeling about this is just don't hurt yourself, avail yourself of whatever conventional medicines can offer. And if you're going to choose an alternative route, just make sure you do things that don't hurt you. Will you please talk about Rashid Buttar and please include the story of Desiree Jennings? Right. So Desiree um, Jennings is a uh, woman who worked for the Washington Redskins, Washington Redskins uh, football team. She she wasn't exactly a cheerleader, but she was something like a greeter. Um, She believed that when she got um, an influenza vaccine, that that caused her to have an abnormal um, gait, which is to say that she could um, she could she couldn't walk forward. She could run forward and she could walk backward, but she couldn't walk forward. She walked with this very sort of uh, unusual gait. She also apparently, although she was born in Ohio, somehow because of that influenza vaccine that she got, she developed a British accent. Um, Influenza vaccines don't do that. They don't cause you to have British accents, uh, nor do they cause you to have abnormal gait disturbances. walking disturbances, they, they don't do that. So, but in any case, the, her belief was that that had happened. And so she um, sought out Rashid Buttar, who is of the belief that, that uh, these mercury, uh, the, these ethyl mercury uh, preservatives that are contained in some multi-dose vials of influenza vaccine had caused her problem. So what he did was he, he offered to chelate her, which is to say to treat her with medicines that would bind to and then eliminate the heavy metal mercury from her body and then make this all go away. I think that that uh, that she did 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 this uh, thing and that it seemed to work initially, but then I think she uh, regressed again. Um, there were actually, I think, Inside Edition did a uh, piece on her where they actually followed her around, not to, not to her knowledge. I mean, they saw her sort of walking into and then walking back from a, a shopping uh, market uh, and seeing that she um, looked fine as she approached the camera. She saw she was being filmed. Then suddenly she developed her walking disorder again. So it was obviously a complete scam. But, but again, if you look, I guess, on YouTube to see how many people have seen her her her, her YouTube uh, uh, of her so her gate abnormality, I'm sure it's been millions at this point. This is a very popular story. But again, Rashid Buttar argues that 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 many things are associated with heavy metal intoxication, you know, cancers and chronic disorders, and he he offers to treat all of that. It's just it's just um it just crosses a line into uh, basically unsupported. Um, medicine. His, his, the medicine that he practices is just not supported by good scientific studies. And so I think he takes advantage of people. Can you talk a bit about the placebo effect in alternative medicine? Yes, I, I think I think there is much to be said for the placebo effect. Alternative medicine, essentially, again, I just want to say there's no such thing as alternative right, medicine, right. but at least what we call alternative medicine, I think is placebo medicine. So is that a bad thing? 
Uh, in some ways, I don't think it is. Uh, you, you, for example, I mean, acupuncture, there are some people who have chronic pain um, who, who, for whom medicines don't really seem to work, which is to say, you know, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or acetaminophen, you know, Tylenol, that just doesn't seem to work. Or even, even the more, you know, bigger hitters, you know, like Oxycontin doesn't seem to work. Yet acupuncture works. I mean, I have a friend who's a, who's a professor at the law school who swears by acupuncture. And so what's going on there? And, and what, so, so people have studied this now to see what is it about acupuncture that allows this person to do better, whereas the drugs didn't. And what they found was that it doesn't matter where you put the needles. You can put them, typically the acupuncturist will put them just in these, along these meridians, which is to say these longitudinal arcs from head to toe as defined by the ancient Chinese. Um, so, so they would put the needles there or they would put them randomly, no matter. Then they, instead of putting them say one half to four inches under the skin, they would just barely put them under the skin. Didn't matter, still work. Or they would just use retractable needles, which is to say the needle would just touch the skin and then retract. And that worked. So it all works. And and then they did a study that I think was really interesting was they they for the people in whom acupuncture did work, they administered a drug called naloxone, which is an endorphin blocker. Endorphins are um, are a chemical that's made in the body, in the brain of the body, that actually is a is a is a morphine-like drug. I mean, endo means means sort of within the body, and morph, morphine is from morphine, right? So and endorphins. What what they found was that you could learn to release your own endorphins. That that believing that acupuncture was going to work for you taught you to release your own endorphins. Wow! And and other studies have shown that you can sort of learn to do things like release your own dopamine. You know, for people with Parkinson's, you can learn to release. You know products of the immune system like cortisol, which will suppress the immune system, or gamma interferon, which will enhance the immune system, that there are sights and smells and tastes and things like acupuncture that can teach you to release, you know, some things that your body naturally produces. That's cool. And I, and I think that's, that's the part of placebo medicine that is really worth following up. Um, again, you just don't want to, you, you know, you don't want to cross the line. So for example, with people with asthma who get, who get, um, who get, you know, bronchodilators, which is what treats asthma, that works. So how about if you give them um, acupuncture, does that work? Or sham acupuncture, does that work? And, and if you look, what you find is that, that um, if you, you know, test things like their ability to expel air, so-called forced expiratory volume, that the only thing that really worked was were bronchodilators, but that people perceived acupuncture or sham acupuncture as working, even though if you, you did a, a subjective, I'm oh, sorry, rather an objective study showing that you didn't have an, a, an increase in your lung volume that, uh, that uh, still people believe that they had. So there's a lot of belief in this. And I think doctors do this too. Conventional doctors do this too. I mean, you walk into the hospital, you know, everybody's got this long white coat on with red stenciling. I mean, it looks like, you know, you're playing the part. When you give somebody a drug and you say, I think this is going to work for you, that actually matters. People do better when, when they're, 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 that is said to them as compared to not. And that's been studied. The red pills seem to, to cause people to, you know, are, are uppers in a sense, whereas bluer pills tend to be downers, uh, you know, to help you relax. So one provides more energy, the other provides more uh, sort of relaxation because of the color of the pill. So I, I do think there's a lot, there's a placebo notion to medicine. You know, when you walk into our hospital, it's, it's like walking into a church. Instead of sort of trusting your soul here, you trust your your body. And, you know, we have big machines that make interesting noises. You know, it all looks therapeutic. And so then you feel that you've been therapeutized. So we, we do that too. Can you, can you talk a bit more about at what point all, you know, so-called alternative medicine becomes quackery? 
I think in a few few settings. I think I think one when you choose an alternative course as compared to something that really could help you. So people who eschew um, chemotherapy, as Steve Jobs did, or, or in his case, surgery, which would have treated his um, his his you know the neuroendocrine tumor he had in his pancreas for an alternative course. I mean that's the worst thing you can do. You you can choose not to do a surgery or radiation therapy or chemotherapy that would have saved your life because you want to take a more benign, albeit, you know, ineffective course or alternative medicine course. That's the worst thing that can happen. I think the the other thing is is when people drain their bank accounts for for some of this stuff, um, that I think is also where where you cross the line from, you know, from placebo medicine to into quackery and 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 it's just unfair i mean you know people are vulnerable in these situations and it's so easy to take advantage of them and that's what i see people like rashid buttar doing i think they take advantage of people's desperate desire to to get better and it's um, i just think it's not fair to them do you think it should be criminal at some point and, and if so at what point uh, not necessarily. I, I think, but I do think that professional societies and licensing boards need to be much more aggressive about this, about about um, making sure that the medicine that's practiced out there is serving the, the the person and is serving the community. And when it's not, I think people should be shut down. I, I don't think they should go to jail. I just think that they should shouldn't be allowed to do what they're doing. It's it's not fair. Uh- so what are your thoughts on things like essential oils as medicine or diet crazes such as, you know, Atkins, ketos, juice cleanses, things like that? No, I think I think sort of the, the general notion that you're intoxicated with things in your environment um, is pretty much a, a, a false notion. So so the people who do chelation therapy, for example, giving you metal uh, medicines often intravenously that bind um heavy metals and rid them from your body. I think that's for the most part nonsense. So all of these sort of cleansings, the bowel cleansings, you know, the diets that are cleansing, the big juice programs that are cleansing, I don't think you need to be cleansed as a general rule. I think there's just as a general rule, exercise, eat healthy, um, you know, try not to drink and smoke. I think that's, you know, that's pretty good advice. I think the rest of it sort of appeals to this notion that we're living in this intoxic environmental hell and that the only way out of it is to, uh, is to have, you know, these, these folks tell us uh, how to, how to behave. And I think that's for the most part nonsense. So everybody knows somebody like this, people who are otherwise extremely intelligent people, but they're totally into, you know, one or two or however many out there or totally out there, alternative supplements or therapies or cures and, and absolutely swear by them and recommend them to all their friends. How do people not only get seduced by these, but go so far as to evangelize them? Um, I, if you look at this, um, it's the same thing, I think, in the in the anti-vaccine world. Um, at who, is, who are these folks? Generally, they're, as generally, they're Caucasian. They're uh, upper middle class, upper class. They're college educated, often graduate school educated and often have jobs in which they exercise some level of control. So uh, they often believe that they can, you know, Google these issues, whether it's vaccines or other, and know pretty much just as much as anybody that's giving them advice. And, and this is, um, they're in danger lies. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of this postmodernist thinking that, that everybody's um, equal. 
that, that we're all equal in terms of being able to evaluate data, even, even if we have no expertise in the subject or we have no experience in the subject. And, and we're, we're less likely to, therefore, in this postmodern world, less likely to yield to, to people who have experience and expertise because we think we can just know just as much as they do if we just spend some time on the Internet. And that's what killed Steve Jobs. I mean, I think Internet access killed Steve Jobs. He, he, uh, you know, he, he believed that he, he looked on the Internet. He found out that pancreatic cancer could be treated with, you know, with uh, acupuncture or bowel cleansings or whatever. And, and that just wasn't true. And he, he really hurt himself. He assumed that he's a smart guy, Steve Jobs, yet he he's probably one of the smartest who, who, who makes this kind of choice. I mean, he didn't need to die. He had a neuroendocrine tumor of his pancreas early surgery. He had a 95% chance of survival, and he didn't. It's, it's a remarkable story uh, to me that somebody that intelligent could make those kind of choices. But he's the, he's the poster boy, I think, for just what you're talking about. And I, I, you see out there too, you know, the, the little uh, or the, the, the gurus who, you know, they can crack somebody's back and make it feel better. And then the, the people just trust them to, you know, recommend all sorts of other, you know, dietary, supplemental, whatever recommendations. And because they help them in one area, they trust them in everything. Yeah, well, we want, we want to believe that there's certainty out there. I mean, the fact of the matter is medicine only knows so much. There are things that we're not very good at. And I think, you know, for people like Rashid Buttar who step in and say, you know, I know, I know, and I know things, you know, that your doctor's not telling you. And that's very seductive because the fact of the matter is there are things that, that conventional medicine does know. There's much that conventional medicine doesn't know. I, I'd like to think that we'll know it more and more as time goes on. But um, the notion that there's sort of some sort of conspiracy to hide information from patients is just wrong. Uh, and so, but it, but it's very easy to appeal to people's notion of conspiracy. I think now more than ever. I mean, whole presidents seem to get elected on this notion. I think a lot of people are seduced by the words, you know, ancient cures and and things like that, or Eastern, or you know, just little buzzwords like that as well. Exactly. I, I'm not sure why. why. Why do people think that we knew so much two thousand years ago that we know now? <laughs> Do you have any advice for the listeners on on how to avoid um, so-called alternative therapies that just don't work or that may be harmful to them? I, I think you should pick somebody who has an expertise in a subject and experience in that subject and trust them. And and I think what what sort of self-education does for you, I mean, you know, looking, reading books, reading, you know, looking at magazine articles, reading newspaper articles, looking on the Internet to find information makes you a better person at asking questions, makes you more incisive about asking questions. So, so I'll give you certain examples. I mean, the, the we, we have shown that you can prevent colon cancers with colonoscopies and that that saves lives. We can show that at least in certain age groups that you can do mammography. For, to detect breast cancer, and that saves lives. Or that we can do pap smears for, for, for people, and that that can predict cervical cancers, and that can save lives. But that, that doesn't extend to all cancers. I mean, we, you know, for years, for now a couple decades, we did, you know, so-called PSA testing, which is a blood test uh, for, to detect prostate cancer, that was a very poor predictor of prostate cancer. And biopsies were a poor predictor of who was going to die from prostate cancer. So for all the PSAs that have been ordered, for all the prostate biopsies that have been done, for all the surgeries that have been done and, and radiation therapy that's been, been done in the name of preventing prostate cancer, we have not extended men's lives, which is to say most men die with prostate cancer, not from it. And so we've done nothing to help them. 
Similarly with thyroid cancer. I mean, if you look for all the scanning that we do, for all these nodules that are picked up, including these sort of smaller nodules, and for all then the, the radical surgery we've, we've done removing thyroids and putting people, mostly women, frankly, on, you know, replacement hormones that are very difficult to regulate, we haven't extended people's lives because most people die with thyroid cancer and not from it. I mean, I think if you took sections that were thin enough in autopsies of people who died for other reasons, you'd find thyroid cancers in probably 100% of people. So, so you're not preventing that. So, so that information is out there. And I think that when you, you go to your urologist or you go to your OBGYN person or you go to your endocrinologist, you, know, you, should, that, that you can find that information out there. And that should make you much, a much better consumer of medicine. I think where people make a mistake is they think, forget conventional medicine. They don't know what they're doing. Let's just go this alternative route because my doctors aren't telling me stuff. Well, Paul, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, my final question for you is what are you working on now? Um, that I'm working on what I just told you actually is a book okay. about sort of, um, kind of too much medicine. I think the book is going to be called overkill with a subtitle of something like when modern medicine goes too far. I, I do think there's, there's a lot of information out there that we don't need to treat fever the way we treat it. Uh, so aggressively, it's an adaptive part of our immune response. We benefit from fever. Um, things like the antibiotic course, I think, is, is starting to have its day. And you're seeing studies out there now looking at uh, just stopping antibiotics. When you start to feel better, you don't need to have a defined course at the beginning of illness. Why do that? We don't do that for pain medicine. We don't do that for asthma medicine. Why do we have to treat for 10 days or 14 days when you feel better after day three? And there now are studies that are being done showing that. So I think we're sort of on the cusp of, of trying to see where we have gone too far, where American medicine... Uh, the pendulum of American medicine has swung too far in overdiagnosis and overtreatment. So that that's what that book's about. That sounds great. Uh, when it's finished, you'll have to let me know. I, I can't wait to read it, and I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about that one too. Thank you, Jeremy. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Thank you, Jeremy. You too. 